This is Life in the Passing Lane, an autobiography by me. I'm Alex Bennett. We're titling this chapter, Flora the. So in our last chapter, I was fired again. And uh, then an earthquake took place in San Francisco, which made it even harder for me to find work in San Francisco. And then all of a sudden I found myself about five months out of work and it didn't look like there were any prospects until I got a very interesting call. And the call was from Florida. It was from a radio station called WIOD in Florida. And uh, they needed somebody to replace their guy who went on in the afternoons for like a week because he was going on vacation. The guy I was supposed to replace was a guy by the name of Neil Rogers, who may have been the most popular talk show host in Miami. So anyway, I went down there. I did a, they flew me in. They put me up at a very nice hotel. And they said, uh, just do a week, uh, you know, show us what you can do. And, uh, you know, there were no promises of a job or anything else. I was just taken over for this guy. And I went down there and I did the job. And as I told you last time, uh, the first day they went, nah. second day, hmm. third day, huh. fourth day, huh? and fifth day, they took me out to lunch and offered me a job. They said, we're going to need somebody to go on from like, uh, I think it was nine to noon in the morning. And would I like the job? And I played a little hard to get, and I said, well, let me go back to California and talk it over with my business manager, and then he will be in contact with you, and we'll talk about, you know, how much money and so on and so forth. And they said, fine. And I went back to California, back to my earthquake-ridden apartment in the earthquake-ridden marina. And, uh, I, you know, I talked to my business manager, Gary, and, of course, there was no question that I had to take this job. There was no other prospects. Plus, it wasn't bad. They were offering me pretty damn good money. And those were the days when radio stations would play, pay damn good money for somebody they wanted. And I just had no other choice uh, but to take the job in Florida. And I was happy with it. It was the, a bit, the major talk station in, in uh, Miami, WIOD. Stood for Island of Dreams. Uh, I soon find out it should have been WION, Island of Nightmares. But anyway, so uh, I, uh, I decided I was going to move down there. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, the on and off again girlfriend, X, I said to her, you want to go with me? And she said, move to Florida? Sure, why not? And so we started packing up our bags and everything like that. And the start date was somewhere in the beginning of January, somewhere I seem to remember like January 15th. And uh, so we got in the car and uh, we uh, started traveling down to Florida from California. Uh, just a small change in climate. <laughs> And so we, we drove uh, down, let's see, we went uh, down south in California, then over through Arizona, New Mexico, then into Texas, down to Houston, and then over to New Orleans where we made a stop. And that stop was I had to go to Paul Prudhomme's restaurant, Chez Paul. 
Paul Verdome had been on my radio show in San Francisco, I think on a couple of occasions, in which he came in and he fed us. And the food was, of course, that extraordinary New Orleans food. I mean, New York and New Orleans is great for, for food, for music, and for just the easy life, okay? At least pre-Katrina. Uh, so I um, uh, wanted to go to Paul Prudhomme's place. It was called Shea Paul, and it was around noon, I think, and we pull up to the place. And I had heard that if you wanted to go at night, they had two actually two restaurants in the place one was for like lunch and and uh, s small eating and things like that upstairs downstairs they had a big giant dining room where they served dinner and if you wanted to go to that you'd have to like book your place months in advance i mean it just, he was so notoriously great at cooking that uh, it was very hard to get a seat at his restaurant downstairs but we thought ah, what let's go in and see and we went in and they said oh for lunch we have a we have a table available and so we went upstairs now this is just their 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 lunch and i'm figuring eh you know it's what how's it going to compare to what i would get downstairs okay and the answer to that question was one of the most amazing meals i've ever had in my life I mean, I remember that I had some, uh, uh, I think it was jambalaya, and that on our way out of New Orleans, we went to Florida, to the Florida border, and until I got to the Florida border, there was still kind of a resin in the roof of my mouth where I could keep tasting this food I had had for lunch, and it was the most wonderful taste. Well, X says to me, gee, I wonder if we could uh, go meet the chef. And I said, look, I, Paul Prudhomme probably hasn't stuck his nose in this place in a year. He's all over the country selling his cookbooks and his spices and his everything. And uh, so she asked the waitress, uh, could I have a menu to take with me kind of as a souvenir? And the waitress was very accommodating and said, of course, and brought her a... a, a, a uh, what do you call it? a menu and and said uh, if you'd like to have it signed by the chef he's downstairs in the garage now uh, she goes oh we can go see the chef yes and i'm thinking the chef yeah the guy who cooked the meal okay the guy who was in the uh, kitchen okay the guy who's in charge while paul isn't there and so we, on our way out, we find our way into this little alleyway, and it leads to a basement. And in the basement is this huge, I guess I could call it van or camper, would probably be a better way of describing it. It, wasn't a, it was a, yeah, that's what it was. And we walk up the steps to it, and we walk in the door, and what do we see but Paul Prudhomme at a table mixing up spices and i'm thinking to myself whoa and she looks at me and goes hasn't seen the place in a year and we say he said can i help you and i said yes we uh, we we love your food we love your meal i've had you on my show in san francisco on a couple of occasions and my girlfriend here would love to have her uh, menu signed and he said i sure and he uh, took the menu and he signed it as something like happy eating or, you know, lustful eating or something. Really, it was very nice. 
probably writes it on all the menus, but that was very nice of him to do. And then he spent some time talking with us about the food, about him mixing the spices, and he couldn't have been nicer. Uh, he's since dead now. He died, I think, about a year or two ago. But that meal and the meeting of Paul, Paul Prudhomme in that environment was a memory that I will always have, and I'm sure X will always have it, and I'm sure she still has that menu as part of her souvenirs of her life. And we got back in the car, and as I said, the roof of my mouth was still riotously tasting this, this food that they had made there. And it was just the most amazing thing ever. Anyway, so we get, to, we get to the Florida border, and I can't remember. I think we stayed in the, at the border overnight, figuring we'd uh, make one last zip down to Miami. And the way down to Miami, all of a sudden, we realize we're passing through Orlando. And what's in Orlando but Disney World? Now, uh, I have a friend, Penn Gillette, and Penn and Teller. And Penn said to me, don't ever go to or Disney World Orlando. He said, there are nothing but lines forever to get into anything. He says, unless you're somebody like me, who they know, you don't get to pass the lines or do anything like that. And it's just, it's a miserable experience. So I said, ah, what the fuck? Let's try anyway. So we, we, go, we pull into the parking lot and we walk in. And we buy, I, I'm trying to remember if he bought a ticket in those days. I remember Disneyland in the early years used to buy a booklet. And you, could, you bought a big book or you bought a medium book or you bought a small book. And it had tickets to all these various rides. And there were A rides, B rides, C rides, D rides. But I think at this point you paid one fee and you just got into everything. Okay. So I, I, what the hell, let's give it a try. We go in, line. We walked right up to the box office, bought our tickets, and walked in. And there wasn't a single ride that we could go on where we weren't uh, just going right through, right? I want to go on the Indiana Jones ride. Fine. Cool. Two minutes. And I'm thinking, that fucking pen. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Of course, I suddenly realized that it's like, I don't know, the first week in January, the second week in January. And of course, nobody's traveling. It's probably the downtime for them. And it's true. There was hardly anybody there. We had Disney World all to ourselves. And so I remember that. So far, the trip is exceptional. Okay. Lunch at Paul Prudhomme's. Disney World, which is, you know, I, I don't care how jaded you are. Disney World is a lot of fun. Okay. And then, uh, you know, we're just having the best trip ever, okay? This is the predecessor to winding up in Miami, which is another story altogether. So we, uh, uh, we finally, I think we spent the night in a hotel somewhere before we got to Miami because we had spent so much time in Orlando at uh, Disney World that we finally got to um, Miami. And uh, I didn't have an apartment in Miami. And that was the biggest problem. And I can't remember how we found an apartment. Uh, but uh, it was not difficult. 
but we got it in the wrong place. You see, there were a lot of places I could have gotten a, a place to stay, uh, uh, an apartment, but instead I chose to get it in Coconut Grove. Why? Because I heard Coconut Grove was a great place. And I was in this like four or five story building that had apartments in it in Coconut Grove. The only thing I didn't realize is, is that on Friday, Saturday, and Sundays, Coconut Grove is a human traffic jam, okay? And uh, you can't even, if I wanted to take my car to go somewhere, it took me forever to get out of my garage and then around the corner to get out of the area. And of course, coming back wasn't any more fun, okay? So it was really just, uh, it, I had picked the wrong place. But by then, you know, I couldn't do anything about it. I was moved into it. I think I had an obligation for, a, uh, maybe it was a month by month, if I remember correctly. Uh, but anyway, it was just not uh, a great uh, uh, experience living in Coconut Grove. That was for starters, okay? The fact that the place we were living in was so miserable to get in and out of. Oh, in the morning when I had to go to work, it was fine on the weekdays. But the weekends, forget it. We never even left the apartment. We stayed in the apartment. It was no. We could, if we wanted to go somewhere, it was just too much trouble. Anyway, let me tell you about the radio station. Uh, there's there are things in uh, Florida called causeways. These are, I guess, bridges you travel over to get to places that you want to go. In this case, there was a causeway that went from uh, Miami over to Miami Beach, um, which is where all the old Jews go to eat at Wolfie's. I'll tell you more about Wolfie's later. Anyway, um, and on this causeway, halfway there, uh, I don't know how they built it. I think maybe it was built on a rock outcropping or whatever, but you could drive in and there was a radio station there, and there was WIOD. We were in the middle of this causeway. And as I said, IOD and the WIOD stood for Island of Dreams. Must have been named years ago, because quite frankly, by the time I got there, um, as you will find out, I found Miami to be a fucking nightmare. All right? So I get there. And uh, I meet up with the general manager. His name was Mike Disney. Very nice guy at the time. Uh, and I, um, uh, we, we set up the whole thing. And I was going to start on, uh, on Monday. And they were going to premiere the show. And it was going to go. And I think, I think I actually went on at 10 o'clock in the morning. Went till 1. And the guy I preceded was the guy I had replaced who was on vacation at the time. And his name was Neil Rogers. Now, let me tell you about Neil. Neil was easily the highest paid, best known, most popular talk show host in Miami. Maybe outside of maybe some guy like Larry King, and he may not have been that big when he was in Miami, probably the biggest talk show host ever to hit Miami. Now, I can't give you any good reasons for it because I, quite frankly, never could see it. Uh, and um, the other factor here, and I don't want to make a big deal out of it because I never do, was the fact that Neil was quite gay. And he never made any, uh, uh, any um, um, dispute about that. 
Uh, he would tell his audience straight out he was gay, and they loved him anyway. In fact, it's strange about Miami. Uh, Miami was a far more tolerant town, I, I know that sounds strange, than other towns I've lived in in my life. I mean, it was more tolerant than Miami. Uh, and uh, San Francisco was very tolerant, but uh, I didn't expect to find it in Miami, and yet here's this guy who is openly gay on the air, says he's gay, makes no bones about it, and they love him. And on top of that, there was a woman, and I think her name was Ann Bishop, who was the 6 o'clock anchor uh, on a station, I think it was Channel 7 maybe in, in Miami, and she was openly gay a lesbian, and she had been doing the news there for, I don't know, 20 years and was the most popular anchor. Somehow sexuality did not matter to people in that part of the country, and that's the one good thing I can say about Miami, okay? And, um, but anyway, Neil, Neil was, uh, uh, Rogers was uh, 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 just an amazing force in this town. And of course, you know, it was wonderful to go on before him because if I were a host of a show that went on after me, I would say, hey, I hope everybody's listening to the new Alex Bennett program and everybody's going to love Alex and I've heard him and he's terrific. You know, give me his blessing. You could hear crickets. There was no blessing. The minute I walked in the door, Neil, for some reason, had it out for me. Now, I don't know why he had it out for me, because I treated him with nothing but the highest amount of respect. I mean, that's what you do. He's the big macha at the, at the station. You don't sit there and make some kind of uh, 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 horrible castigations towards the guy. You want him to like you. Uh, you want to like him. You want it to all be a happy family. Now, I... Um, let me tell you a side story about him. We really weren't having a bad time, um, uh, although he was, uh, he kind of got mad. I had, uh, on one of my early shows, my friend Penn Gillette said, listen, I'm not doing anything that week. Why don't I just fly down to Miami? I'll do your show every day for the first week. And I said, Penn, that would be really nice. You don't have to. He says, look, I scuba dive. And uh, I'll just bring all my scuba gear, and I'll go scuba diving after your show's over with. And um, I'll bring a girlfriend with me, and it'll be, it'll be good. So uh, Penn comes down to the show uh, five days a week. And for some reason, Neil hates that, too. He hates Penn Gillette. I mean, he hates anything about me. And I can't figure out why, because I've done nothing but, Hi, Neil. How are you? Oh, boy, I listened to you yesterday. You're terrific, man. I just am so appreciative that I'm working next to a guy like you. Yeah, I couldn't have kissed his ass more, and the more I kissed his ass, the more he hated me. Um, and uh, he did not like Penn, because Penn made some joke about Neil's dog. Neil's dog ate a frog. And <laughs> And it seemed as though the dog got sick from eating the toad because the toad was a poisonous toad. So Neil had to take his dog. This was a big deal on his show. Had to take his dog to the vet to have him detoxified or something from the, from the toad. And so for the rest of the week, Penn is referring 
to Neil's dog as the toad-sucking dog, okay? Anyway, he did not like Penn. Uh, but I had Penn on, and I remember a couple of things about having Penn on. Uh, I wound up in his book, uh, I'm trying to remember which one, a uh, whole chapter about a bet we made. And he was going scuba diving, and he brought his girlfriend, and he and his girlfriend said they were going to have sex underwater. And I said to Penn, I'll make you a bet you can't do it. And he said, what do you mean I can't do it? You know, all I have to do is get it up, and we'll just do it, and, you know, all we have to do is just a little bit, you know. And I said, I'll bet you 100 bucks you can't have sex underwater, and I'm going to rely on your honesty once you've tried it. And in his book, the whole chapter is about him trying to live up to this bet. And finally, he comes back after trying it, and he says to me, here's the 100 bucks. <laughs> and I said, okay, what happened? He said, I got down there, and uh, I pulled it out, uh, and it was limp as a, as, a, as, a, as a whatever goes limp. And uh, he said, I had a hard time getting it up, and then when I finally did, a fish started nibbling at my penis, and that was it. And he, he gave me the hundred bucks. And he said, how'd you know it wouldn't work? And I said, because the, 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 that organ, in order to get engorged with blood, needs warmth. And you're out in cold water. Haven't you ever gone swimming and you come back and it looks like a turtle that's hiding from the world? In fact, the whole episode on Seinfeld was about how small it was, the shrinkage that happens when you leave the, uh, the water. So anyway, uh, that was the fun we had. Uh, I also remember uh, going out to the dog races with Penn and also uh, 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 Tim Jennison of the company New Tech. And uh, we went out and watched the, the races going on. And there I learned something again from Penn that you always bet on the dog who just took a dump. He said they run faster. I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know. And X is with me, and she's just enraged. How can they race these dogs? Look how skinny they are. Look how terrible they are. And you know something, really, in all her innocence at the time, um, the innocence of youth is wonderful. Uh, and it's nice to have around, believe it or not. And um, but in all that innocence, she you know she was the smart one. She was the one making the real cogent statement that these dogs probably were either not fed or something was going on that made them so skinny so that they could run really fast. And after a rabbit, they were never going to be able to catch. And you know so that was another one of the things uh, that we did. Another one of the things that uh, Penn did. Penn uh, loved going to. Uh, well, he had to hit the topless donut shop in, uh, it was outside of Miami, another town, small town. And he'd always heard about the topless donut shop, and he wanted to go to the topless donut shop. So he went to the topless donut shop. Now, somewhere along the line, some guy woke up in the morning one day and said, you know what, I'm going to combine the two things I like most, topless women and donuts. And he started, it was called Our Donuts, and it was the topless donut shop. And uh, he would go down there, and he got to know them all, and 
he would eat the donuts and watch the women topless and come back on the show and report it. Well, it so happened that one day I had on women from, uh, what's the uh, chicken wing place? Hooters. Hooters had just kind of started. And the women, of course, all wore the, the tank tops and the little tight uh, 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 pants. And um, I had them on the show. And uh, at one point during the show, um, Penn mentions that he went to our donuts, the topless donut shop. And they went, oh. And he said, what do you mean, oh? He said, what you're doing is dishonest. You're flaunting yourself, but you're not even taking your top off. Why don't you take your top off? Come on. And they said, why don't you drop your pants? He says, okay. And he drops his pants. And I swear to you, I wish I had the tape of it. One of the women screams out, oh my God, it looks like one of our chicken wings. <laughs> anyway, that was my first week on the air with Penn Gillette. And it was a good show. You know, we were doing fine. But this guy, Neil, Neil hated me. He just, there was something about me he didn't like. And I think what he didn't like about me was that I was maybe perhaps uh, a threat to him. And I don't know how he felt that. Here's a guy making, at that point, something like half a million dollars a year off this radio station. Uh, maybe a million. I know he went on to make a million at another radio station. Um, he, uh, he had the highest ratings of any talk show host in town. And he's jealous of me. I mean, you'd think he'd be supportive because when you, when you work at a station... Uh, you may not be supportive of people at other stations in town. You may give them a bad time. You may be call them talentless and blah, blah, blah. If tomorrow they came to work at your radio station, you'd support them. You know, you'd be positive about them. Uh, that's because you're all, you're all in the same bed together fighting all these other beds at all the other radio stations. And, um, but he wasn't that way, Neil. Now, let me tell you another story about Neil. Neil Rogers comes in one morning, and he says to me, I couldn't sleep last night. I was tossing and turning, and my arm was hurting and kind of numb. And I said to him, don't do anything. Close the show out. Get somebody else to do it. I'll do it if you want me to get to a doctor right now because it sounds to me like you had a stroke and he went really and i said yes get to the doctor right now so he left his show went to the hospital and sure enough he was having a stroke and they did what they had to do he was out for a couple of weeks but what i did okay was save Neil Rogers' life. Now, if any of you are listening to this in Miami and you know Neil Rogers and you've enjoyed him over the years, one of the reasons you continue to enjoy him was because I saved Neil Rogers' life. Had I not told him to go to the doctor, the thing might have continued without abatement and he might have died. Now, he comes back, okay? He's better now. I've saved his life. You'd think maybe he would be nicer to me. 
not in your wildest dreams. He still hated me. And he would constantly go on the air and gripe about me and put me down. And it was, it was actually worse after the stroke than before the stroke. And I would just think that he would, you know, at that point have laid off of me and going, hey, this guy did me a mitzvah. No, he didn't. Now, you know, I don't want people to kiss my ass or be appreciative because they saved their life. It's what you do. If you don't do it, you're doing something wrong. But at least I would have liked a little cooperation and a little consideration and the, the feeling that, hey, uh, Alex isn't that bad a guy and I should go easier on him and I should be more supportive of him. But he wasn't. And it just got really miserable. How miserable did it get? Oh, you have no idea. It got terrible. And I'm only like two months into this station. Wait till you hear the rest of it. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett.